Here's the thing though. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Darug and Kuringai people who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how's it going? How's your week been? Um, it's been okay. I just feel a bit headachey and ill, but I finished university for the year, so I'm, I'm in this conflicted space of just feeling a bit gross, but also celebrating on the inside. It's like you feel bad for feeling gross because you're supposed to be. Feeling I should good. be very happy, <laughs> but I'm just sort of miserable. Oh. But otherwise, but this is a highlight, so no, oh. yeah, you'll be all right. Anyways, how has your week been? Better, I hope. Yeah, my, my week's been all right, uh, working. I got back into some creative stuff that I've been trying to get into for a while. I've been having some artistic blockage, um, but I was painting yesterday and it all just flowed and it felt good to kind of just be back in the groove. Uh, I what I got well. I made my family watch Knives Out because I'd seen it with you, Mitch, before. Mitch is so going to introduce good. the movie to me. So good. It is so good, and I totally judged it by the trailer. Like when I saw the trailer, I was like, "This is this is like the trashiest, no. like cheesiest, you know, overindulgent film ever." I'm not going to watch this, and I was talking so much shit. And Mitch was, and then Mitch watched it and said it was amazing. I had to watch it with him and made me watch it with him. And I'm so glad because it was actually so good. It is like. Really topical, very subtly political. It is so good. And you like left-wing people, you will like it. You will love the commentary. Oh, it's very intelligent and it's, uh, mm. it's very forward with its uh, very progressive left-wing film. sort of ideology. It's yeah. great. And also another reason why not to watch trailers because <laughs> they mislead you. Mitch is like very anti-trailer. He puts I his headphones yeah. on and closes his eyes when trailers come trailers. on in movies. I love trailers. My movie going experience has been so improved by just going to every movie as blind as I can I, I can possibly be. Like Which, not even knowing the plot, only knowing the actors and the director. I'm set. And I hate that. Like no. I hate going to the... Look, honestly, going to the movies with Mitch because he's pretty much the only person I go to the movies with lately has really like changed my movie experience just because like... Before him, I would have never even considered ever going to a movie without already knowing what it's going to be about. I've watched seven different trailers. I already know what most of the plot's going to be. I know what the characters are. Like, I like going in and being comfortable. I'm the kind of person who watches a TV show and gets anxiety because I don't know the plot. And then I look it up on Wikipedia and spoil it for myself because then it's easier to sit through this, the tense bit. I'm that bitch. I just ruin <laughs> everything I watch. But I enjoy it that way because I hate the anxiety of it all. Um... But Mitch, when I told him about the Wikipedia thing, looked at me like I just, you know, committed a huge sin, blasphemy. Uh, there was some <laughs> rage. And so I don't do that anymore. I haven't for a while. Um, and a lot of the movies I go with, like, to watch with Mitch, I normally just don't know what's happening. Like, he'll be like, hey, there's a movie I want to watch next week. Do you want to go? And I'd be like, yeah. You're so lucky. You get the pure movie <laughs> experience. Anyways. So I just, like, go with him and watch things and I have no like clue what it's going to be about. But I honestly don't think that watching trailers has really, like, I don't think not watching them has changed my movie experience that much. Like, I don't think it makes a tangible difference whether or not I watch a trailer. It's slightly more stressful when I don't watch a trailer. But yeah, no, Mitch is just looking at me like he's about to give up. (laughs) 
anyways, the point of that tangent was to say you guys should watch Knives Out. It is really, really, really good. I highly recommend it. Um, and the other thing I want to mention about my week is I've just started listening to the podcast called Stuff the British Stole. It's brand new. There's only two episodes out. The first episode came out last week and the second one came out like yesterday or something. And it's really good. I've only heard the first episode, but it's about it's by Mark uh, Fennell, who if all of you don't know, he's like a journalist slash media personality, but he's pretty cool. And he is half Indian, so I'm already claiming him as like a brown person. <laughs> um, no, it's actually really interesting. And it's like basically about colonizer history and the erasure of violent history and just basically how everything in the British Museum was stolen by colonizers. It is good. I do recommend. That's my recommendation this week. I got two. Cool. Yeah. What are we talking about today, Saliha? Uh, we are going to talk about the struggle of growing up as a child of immigrants. But before we get into that, we have some follow up that mm-hmm. we need to do from Lots last of week. Some uh, good follow up. Some yeah, we've got some some meaty follow up for you guys. <laughs> Which is just looking at meaty because he's like, he's vegan and I'm vegetarian. But, you know, I don't know. I just couldn't think of a word that wasn't meaty in that moment. Ugh. Anyways. (laughs) Um, Okay. So we have two things to bring up today. The first one is we actually received an email from a paramedic who works closely with police in like Western Sydney around the area that I grew up in, like the Mandurah area. And it basically detailed the stuff that she'd seen while being there. Like this is in response to our ACAP episode where we discussed like police brutality and corruption. Um, And she said that the way that people are treated in custody and the cell conditions that she has seen uh, while working with police are like disgusting. Um, And that there's just so much like toxic masculinity and misogyny around all these cops. Like she mentioned the situation where she was like driving an Amber and there was a cop next to her and she's like drinking a mocha and he was all like wow wish i could order a mocha because it's just there is so much toxic masculinity in policing that like you can't even have a mocha without being treated like you're this like feminine like fucking loser (laughs) that's so sad just like imagine living your life like that just being so concerned with these strange conceptions of masculinity that you can't even have a little tasty beverage you can't even have a little chocolate drink because that's like too girly you just out of your mind. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. And she's she's basically like was telling us about her experiences and talking about how like she's actually been pulled over by cops herself when she was a red P like driver for no reason. Apparently they suspected that she was drunk, which she was not. And they were literally like making up charges against her, which she was just like that those just don't even exist. Um and like giving her like ridiculous demands to prove her soberness, which, like, weren't even possible, you know, just, like, uh, telling her to perform certain physical acts that, like, to prove that she's not drunk, which, like, nobody can do. And just, like, in general, like, terrorising her and other people. Um, And she even, like, mentioned how, like, she knows of a sexual assault case by a policing student, um, which obviously nothing was done about. And it was just, like, I just wanted to share the contents of that email to let you guys know just how necessary, like, the ACAB movement is because we are a small podcast with a fairly niche audience, um, and yet our like fairly small reach ACAP episode is resulting in real life stories from like insiders about police brutality and corruption. Because this shit is real. 
anyone who's had an interaction with cops has probably heard a story or is part of a story of a bad interaction with cops. Yeah, it happens everywhere. It's so pervasive. Like yeah. you just you, you you know someone or at least know someone that knows someone that has had absolutely dreadful experiences with yeah. police. Yeah. And um this person who emailed us, she like like I said works in the Western Sydney area which has really high levels of policing and a very bad rep. Like Mandurah area has a terrible rep as like being like this like area where just criminals live. But as somebody who got up in Mount Druitt, it's really not like that. As I've said, I think I talked about it in a previous episode. There's just like a huge sense of community there. Um, and like she discusses how like, because she's not from the Mount Druitt area. She just she just worked there. And she talks about how the people there were always lovely. Like just like the locals and like people who live around the area are lovely. But the police there are just like absolutely fucked. And it's true. Like it just is. So I just wanted to like detail that email to you guys because I just wanted to give you you know, insider information, like a real life example of somebody who works very closely with police as a paramedic, knowing, and like she knows just how fucked cops are, somebody who works with them. It's not just us on this podcast talking shit. This is a reality. Uh, the second follow-up thing we want to bring up is we actually got a question from one of our lovely, lovely patrons, Siobhan. She said, thanks for this episode. Just a follow-up question. The term ACAB has definitely gained more attention and use this year, and I've been seeing a lot of Hello Kitty ACAB and other things along those lines. Uh, do you think that ACAB has become watered down, and is Hello Kitty ACAB detrimental to the movement around abolition or defunding the police? On one hand, I can see how it can make ACAB more well-known, but I also can see that it trivializes a serious topic. Hmm. I thought this was a really great question, first of all. So thank you so much for that because it's really good. And it made me think and I had to sit down and actually think about it for a while. And I even shifted my opinion a few times. So that's how you know you've asked a good question. Uh, it definitely got Mitch and I into a bit of a discussion earlier today. My knee-jerk response to that question was kind of just like, eh, like, what does it matter? Exposure is still good. Like, if some people are using it wrong or, like, trivializing, they're just, like, random teenagers on the internet. Like, who cares? Um... It might lead somebody to Google the term ACAB and that's good. But the more I thought about it, the more I still think about it now, I guess I can see it becoming more and more problematic the more I kind of dive into that hole. Uh, more so because of like the co-option of the term ACAB because nothing fucking kills a movement quicker than a bunch of liberals jumping on it. We can see that every day in regular politics. Um, we've talked about it previously with like feminism and RBG and just American politics and democracy in America. It's like you bring up an, a genuinely radical movement um, and then liberals will come, co-opt it, water it down and turn it into a palatable thing and just ruin the movement. You see it all the time. And while, I mean, ACAB is pretty radical to its core, I don't, I don't really know how I could see that become watered down, but I can imagine it happening kind of the way that like a lot of people were calling for uh, police abolishment, abolishment back in Obama's day. And instead the liberals responded with, oh, we'll just put body cams on them. And it's like a way to be like, look, we, we care about what you guys are saying. Look at us like trying to reform policing. But in reality, the body cams did nothing uh, there, there is footage from body cams of cops murdering black people that still hasn't got them indicted. Like it really didn't change anything. It just cost millions of taxpayer dollars. So I can see how in a similar sense, in a social perspective, um, the use of ACAB by like liberals who don't know what the fuck they're talking about can become a problem because they'll turn it into a much watered down issue that's very easy to solve. And actually it's far deeper than that. Um 
yeah, I think I would agree that it's sort of a two-sided issue that I'm not entirely certain about. My main issue, I guess, with the Hello Kitty thing would just be that I know that capitalism is an endlessly malleable system. It's like the reason it is so pervasive is because it can adapt to anything. And we've seen before radical discourses, you know, anti-racist or climate change discourses has have been subsumed by capitalism and then resold uh, back to the public. Like we can look at so much fast fashion being the cause of climate change, just irresponsible, uh, unsustainable production. But you can go into most fast fashion stores and get a t-shirt that says save the planet on it. What was once maybe like a really radical call for action has just been commodified and sold back. We can see that with like BLM t-shirts. So I'm just concerned. While I I would think ACAB is more radical than, than those, I can imagine a world where we go into like Uniqlo and find like a fuck the police or an ACAB shirt just because i know that capitalism will just commodify and water down everything yeah and i think maybe part of the reason i can see it being possible is like because of brianna taylor as a lot of you probably already know she was one of the women one of the black women killed by cops uh in i want to say recent times but it's been like a year or something hasn't it um a while ago and her death was kind of eventually memed. And I don't mean memed in the sense that, like, people were making fun of it and laughing at it. Because I actually think it started off quite genuine. Like, everything was captioned, uh, justice for Breonna Taylor. And I think it started off as a genuine attempt for people to bring attention to this issue because Breonna Taylor was largely ignored uh, during the George Floyd kind of protest. And because George Floyd brought Black Lives Matter to the forefront for a lot of businesses and things like that, there was this idea of like Breonna Taylor died before George Floyd and her death didn't kick off these protests, but his did. And there was like a lot of misogynoir conversations and stuff and whatever. So people were trying to bring light to Breonna Taylor, but then it kind of just had to become a caption for everything. Like random, mostly apolitical white girls are posting Instagrams on, uh, sorry, posting selfies on Instagram and captioning it just for Breonna Taylor. It's starting to just become an accessory and it's no longer really a political slogan that is based in anti-misogynoir. And I can see the Hello Kitty says a cab thing becoming like that. But also I think context matters because somebody like me say, I, I'd probably fucking caption a picture with Hello Kitty says a cab. Cause I think it's really funny. Yeah. I mean, you got, you can't just be too depressive. You got to have a bit of fun. Mitch uh-huh. said something earlier that I thought pretty much summed this up. And he basically said, it's not so much like, it's basically just about who says it. Like it's about who says it. And I think that's really important. Yeah, I think the lesson is just to be weary when you see things like this become aestheticized. Uh, I mean, what, 20 or 30 years ago, we heard NWA rapping, fuck the police coming straight from the underground. And then now we see it on like lip sync karaoke on Jimmy Kimmel or whatever. Like, it's just so easy for these types of things to be consumed by capitalism, watered down and sold back to us. So we think we're doing something when really we're not. So yeah. just be wary. Yeah, I think it leads into a lot of like performative activism and stuff like that. Commodi- um, commodity activism, yeah. all that sort of stuff. But I, yeah, I think it does depend who's saying it because you or your friends who genuinely give a shit about ACAB and do things for the movement, captioning your photo with Hello Kitty says ACAB, it's fine. But maybe it becomes an issue when all the wrong people with very problematic politics are watering it down and co-opting it in order to sell their own version of ACAB that's less radical. There's an article that I'm going to recommend for those of you who are interested in diving down a bit more in this called 
Hello Kitty ACAB, the aestheticization of politics. I didn't read the whole thing, full disclosure, but I skimmed it and it informed some of my opinion. I thought it was really interesting either way. Um, so definitely check it out. I do like that Sailor Moon says fuck the police meme though. That one's all right. <laughs> I love the one with the two frogs riding a bike yes. and it says fuck the police. I do love that one. But yeah, so I guess it, the context matters, but I reckon that's probably how we sit on the issue. Okay, so let's introduce today's topic in a little bit more depth. Uh, today's topic is one that's been requested a few times in the past. Uh, it's basically about the issues and complexes that come up with growing up as a child of immigrants. Of course, immigrants from different cultures will have different experiences, so I obviously can't talk for all of them, but I can talk about my own experience being like a first-generation Australian while my parents and my family are Pakistani immigrants. But I think a lot of Asian and Arab experiences are probably similar to mine as a Southeast Asian person myself. So I imagine a lot of this would be quite relatable to any kind of like people of colour whose family migrated here. I, um, I put up an Instagram story yesterday asking people what they would like me to address if I did discuss being a child of like immigrants and the experience of that in Australia. And there were some common answers, but I think we've discussed previously a lot of them in our internalized racism episodes. You know, things like being being embarrassed of the ethnic food that you eat or the clothes that you wear, the need to distance culture in a pursuit for white proximity. Like that's natural when you live in a state built on white supremacy and the colonization of indigenous people. Um, And probably a lot of people feel that way whether or not their families are migrants, but we did discuss that in internalized racism, our episode there. However... What I'm more interested in discussing today are the complexes, the behavioral and thought processes that like arise almost subconsciously uh, because of our like unique position as both here and there, both local and other, both us and them. We sit in a unique position as the children of immigrants. We're the first generation with a new cultural and national identity, but there's also a lot of baggage that comes with that. So let's get into it. One of the most common answers I received when I put my Instagram story up was the pressure to perform and be successful to make good of my parents' sacrifices. This came up like many times as people responded about their experiences to do with like being a child of immigrants. And I know a lot of you relate to this. It's it's the stereotypical like Asian brown parent thing. I remember one of my friends in high school, she was Pakistani also, uh, used to tell me stories that her parents would tell her about having to climb mountains and, you know, walk for 10 miles to get to school. And anyone in like the subtle curry traits or like Facebook group or like brown Twitter would have seen a million memes about this. It's very much an inside joke because it's basically a universal experience for us. But I think it affects us in way more than we let on. There's an article called to be the child of an immigrant by Ken Ajik, who is a Chinese-American woman, and it details her struggle of hiding her mental health uh, issues for several reasons, one of them being guilt and not being able to be happy despite her family's sacrifices to give her the life and opportunities that she has. She talks about how there are different parent-child dynamics um, in ethnic immigrant families, more so than in typical American ones. What, there's this like standard Western model uh, of parenting and childhood where the parent takes care of the child and they're responsible for the child and they make all the decisions and the child is kind of just free and unburdened because they're young and they don't need these responsibilities and one day they'll become an adult and it'll become their problem. But while they're young, they should just be innocent, uh, which isn't really the case in a lot of immigrant families, especially working class ones. 
not because they're bad parents, but just because our material conditions often don't allow that. You know, there's a redistribution of responsibilities. Uh, the author of that article speaks of being a child and having to translate really important documents and like laws and things uh, to her family because they didn't speak the language, which gave her a lot of responsibility at a very young age and probably developed in a couple of complexes with kind of worrying all the time about her parents' status, especially for people in America who have undocumented family members. That's a lot of responsibility and guilt to hold all the time knowing how much your family has sacrificed for you to be here. So you better be happy and you better be successful for their sake. It's not something that p- parents often say explicitly, although some of them say it. <laughs> some of our parents say it, but not always. Um, but it's something that is really, really, really easy to internalize and turn into anxiety. Um, while I was not in the situation of that author having to ever translate anything for my family, I do really relate to the sentiment of having to be responsible for your family and having to be really conscious of your role and your duties to them. There is always this like guilt. And, you know, sometimes maybe not on purpose, but, you know, family members play an active effort in guilting or shaming uh, because, you know, they brought us into this world and now we owe them. There's a sense of owing that comes with being a child of immigrants and it might not be explicit, but it's there. And it what leads a lot of us to be so like anxious and pressured all the time because we've got to fulfill this destiny that they wrote for us. We have to like complete this timeline. We have to give back. We have to make everything worth it and we can't just exist. And then on top of that, you know, sometimes gender roles can be thrown into the mix. Um, that's a really common one in Pakistani families like my own. Uh, which place more burden or responsibility onto daughters and sons, lol. Uh, which is, you know, basically what happened to me. And this is no hate on my brother, but it's just that there was a lot of, a lot more pressure in my schooling years to succeed. Um, and if I didn't perform as a student, I would lose privileges. My freedom would be chipped away at, not that I really had that much to begin with as a Pakistani teenager. Uh, but then my brother, who's two years younger than me, was not held to those standards and got away with a lot more and was generally allowed to do a lot more than I was without having to earn it. Whereas I like had to earn everything. Everything I had was about earning and working hard. And it does leave some lasting damages. There's this feeling that you owe people, that you have to earn your place in the world, that you aren't ever going to be free of these like shackles of your immigrant family's past because you live for others and not yourself. And that you are first and foremost a provider. Like, that's me to a T. I feel like I constantly fall into the role of a provider, even though I don't have any dependents. I live at home and I don't pay rent. <laughs> but despite that, there are times where I've worked like two or three jobs while also studying full time at uni, like this constant hustle or whatever you want to call it, that isn't necessary for my survival. I don't need to work this hard, but I, I feel like I do. I feel like I do because I feel responsible for creating a future for my family and for putting down roots and buying a house and doing all these other things that I feel like I have to do to repay my family and to earn my place. Um, And it's really toxic because that shit can become generalized very quickly as I have found out with my own like mental health journey. You know, I am prone to feeling like I need to earn basic things like food. (laughs) Sometimes I feel like, I haven't worked hard enough in the day to deserve like proper food and I'll just buy myself a snack. And then Mitch will be like, why aren't you eating? And I'm like, I don't know. I just don't feel like I did. I earned it. And then he's just like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, it's, that's not good. <laughs> I know. That's some um, complex. Yeah, yeah, and it is. And I know it is. And it's something I'm working on and tackling. 
But this real internalizing of earning things, I genuinely believe is a product of an environment where I've kind of been raised to earn shit to the point where it's become damaging. And that's not because anybody ever withheld food from me. Like nobody ever did. But it's really easy when you're already a bit anxious to start internalizing and generalizing all these things and turning them into a complex to force yourself to succeed. You know, a lot of like when you grow up valuing hard work to the point where it becomes a bit toxic and you become an overworker and an overachiever, you start to set yourself more and more ridiculous goals and more and more harsh punishments in order to receive your, in order to get to your ridiculous goals. And it's a complex that I think a lot of brown girls, but also just like people of color whose parents weren't born here in particular feel because there's a pressure to succeed where our families couldn't, you know, to give what they could not, to afford what they could not to do what they couldn't do because look at all they've done for you and your job, your only job is to be better than they were because that's what they wanted for you. And, you know, when you pair that with expectations of what success even is, because success means different things to different people. Um, like I had a friend in high school who wanted to be a vet and ended up going into optometry because that wasn't her parents' idea of success, which by the way is crazy because being a vet is fucking hard. (laughs) You need like the same qualifications as like being a doctor. So I don't know why, but it's just like different families have different ideas of success. Um, There's the stereotypes of like brown families expecting you to be an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor or whatever. And while I didn't have that issue necessarily, I also don't think anybody really takes my career seriously like as some bit like with this podcast and the writing that I do because it's like uh, it's abstract you know it's an, it's an art and while my family's pretty chill about things like career nobody bothers me nobody ever says anything but also nobody ever says anything nobody ever really says congratulations a good job either because this thing just isn't really real you know it's always sort of precarious it's like it's like a phase or something yeah before you get like the actual career or something (laughs) exactly I feel like people still think I'm on my stepping stones where I'm kind of actually doing what I want to do and I don't know if anybody's realized that which is fine in the sense that I don't necessarily need that validation but it's more just a commentary on how we view success and the pressures of success and the fact that I could probably argue that in my own standard, I am successful and where I want to be. I've finished uni. I'm in a long-term relationship. I'm working. I've got a job. Like, I'm happy in that regard. But also, I never quite feel like I'm there. And maybe part of that is because the pressure to succeed with family and the lack of positive reinforcement kind of lead me to always be unsatisfied and to always think maybe there's a bit more that I should be doing. And, like, it's hard. And I imagine a lot of you feel that way. I know that a lot of, just from, like, conversations with my friends, a lot of them are kind of in a similar situation where they're doing what they love and they're good at it and they're earning, but it maybe wasn't their parents' idea of success. And so there isn't that payoff. There isn't that moment that you wait for and you're like, I've, I've done it and your family realize it and you have this like great celebration. Some people get it. A lot of people don't. Um, and it, it, I mean, it's sad, but I think it's, I think it leads to issues, <laughs> which is what we're discussing today. You know, like it leads to complexes. It leads to this, this, idea that you must be a provider that you must be good at everything because if you've not you've, you failed right you failed the i mean the australian version of the american dream you know so i think that's one of them and it kind of leads us to have a lot of conflicting feelings i think about family and culture and religion and whatever because we start to kind of conflate everything together 
Um, one thing that I wanted to mention was like the idea of connecting with the motherland. I think a lot of us have conflicted feelings about the motherland. Uh, my relationship with Pakistan is probably a bit complicated. On the one hand, it's where my parents grew up. It's where a lot of my relatives are. I've been there once when I was like six and I had a great time. Uh, but I also have a lot of family here in Australia too who regularly go back to Pakistan. But the point is I've never really missed out. I never had like a yearning to go there or anything like that because everybody I love is here. And like, I've got like at least like 80 family members that are here. <laughs> I'm good. I'm settled. Um, but despite that, you know, my extended family all speak Urdu fluently, except for me and my siblings and immediately cousins and my immediate cousins, sorry, uh, because we were all raised here together and grew up speaking English. Um, I am, you know, just barely bilingual. <laughs> I can understand. Hello. How are you? Pass the salt, peel the potatoes, wash the dishes, all the other commands that my grandma used to give me. Uh, and I can understand enough to keep up with like the gossip at family events, if I if I try really hard and I concentrate, I know who they're talking shit about and what they're saying. But I can't actually speak for myself at all. It just disappears anytime I try to form the words. It's honestly embarrassing, uh, but only because of the cultural shaming. I feel like it's not embarrassing, but it is because anytime you tell like Pakistani people that, there's the shaming. There's the wow. How can you not have this connection with your motherland? Um, I mentioned the podcast earlier. Uh, Stuff the British soul. Uh, in the beginning of that, Mark actually gets culture shamed by a taxi driver uh, for never having been to India or connecting to the motherland because that's where Mark's mother is from, but like ethnically. I don't think she grew up there. So he's half Indian. His mother is probably more like me, like being of ethnicity, but growing up in a different country. So he doesn't really have any cultural connection to India himself. And that scene of him like talking to his uh, Indian taxi driver who was just shocked and not in a mean way but kind of chastising him for not having that connection really hit home and like one of my friends who is um also like Desi messaged as well and she was like did you hear this part of the podcast because I resonated and I was like same we've all had this conversation I have it all the time with my uber driver because most of my uber Uber drivers in my area are like Pakistani or or like Indian and they always ask me where I'm from because I'm obviously brown they get really excited when I say Pakistan and then they get annoyed and disappointed when they realize how that's not really something I can relate to them on and it's not really something I have a lot to say about because I've not really I went there once when I was six like I don't really know that much about Pakistan or any Pakistani politics the truth is a lot of us feel this pressure to connect with the motherland but we don't really know how to and I mean I do wonder if I even want to and if any of us even want to because our parents obviously have ties to their home, but it's not my home. I don't relate to all of the cultural values. I wear the clothes and I eat the food and I love it, but how much do I like really understand or embody like Pakistani culture? You know, I guess when I think about it, uh, when I was a lot younger, my grandma used to always try and make us go to all the Pakistani Independence Day events with her in the community rec center. And I would go when I was really young and I always like, didn't really give a shit about them. Didn't understand what anybody was saying because most of it was like speeches and Urdu. Um, and I stopped going when I was like 10. And she was really, really disappointed and hurt that my siblings and I just weren't interested in this event. And I feel bad for making her feel bad. And I feel guilty for letting her down. But it's kind of just like, I didn't care. Because I like, what does it mean to me? I've, I've barely been there. I don't speak the language. Most of my friends are not Pakistani. There just isn't a relatability there. And then as I get older and maybe feel a little bit less guilty, I start to actually wonder, like, how much do I really care? And how much do I have to care? Like, should I care? 
I feel guilty for not feeling the connection, but I don't even know if like the reason I feel guilty is because I want to or because I just got shamed constantly for not having it. There's this real trend right now as well of owning our brownness, of knowing our history. It's like it's like woke, you know, to be proud of who you are. Brown girl power, brown girl magic, whatever. And maybe that makes me feel like I should have a connection to the motherland because it's my roots, because it's the right thing to do politically. But like, then I think if that's why I feel like I should care, then do I even care? If I removed the political context of the West erasing our cultures away, would I actually care about continuing this effort? Would I actually care about connecting with my culture? I honestly don't know. Because sometimes I feel like the only reason I'm so intent on keeping this culture alive is because I'm rebelling against colonialism. Not because I actually feel a deeply personal or intimate connection with Pakistani culture, but because I just don't want to see another thing be erased and colonized. You know, it's a moral obligation, but not necessarily like because I just feel invested in this particular culture. It's because I just don't want to see another thing die, you know? And so when I think about that, I don't really know where I stand and how much of it is just pressure to perform um, and how much of it is pressure to be a certain way and to be the vision of like work brown girl. Like, is that why I care? I don't know. It's not just something that comes up a lot. And my grandma passed away recently and it's really got me thinking about it a lot since then because she was kind of my only connection to the culture. And now that she's gone, I'm just like, shit, what, do I actually care? <laughs> How much was I just doing it? Because I was shamed into it. It's, there's a lot. And I'm sure many of you kind of feel that identity clash all the time, like not knowing where you stand. Am I Australian? Am I Pakistani? Am I both? Am I neither? Does it even matter? Because the truth is, Australians will never see me as Australian. It'll always be, but where are you really from? Where are your parents from? But what's your heritage? Blah, 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 blah. And I'll never be cultured enough to fit in Pakist- with Pakistanis because I've tried that and I don't know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> Not anybody's fault. It's just, I just don't have the, the like cultural context to understand. I mean, I could talk all day about the various ways that I'm too brown to fit in with the white kids and too white to fit in with the brown kids and all of that, but it doesn't really need explaining for the most of you. What is interesting, though, and maybe unique, I think, to this generation, like the first gen in Western country from like parents of underprivileged backgrounds, is the entitlement to rights and opportunities that we have. And I don't mean to use entitlement in a negative way. I think it's positive. I think we know our worth in a way that our families might not. Uh, We have this entitlement of people that were born here. And so we feel like we deserve equal treatment. You know, whereas I feel like a lot of immigrant parents kind of feel like they're lucky to be in the country and that they don't critique the government or they don't critique the system that they're living in because it's better than the old one. And they're just grateful. And they're just grateful. And we shouldn't be ungrateful. You know, there's like gratitude shaming. Um, And I just think it's really interesting because probably the first time I became conscious of that really, because my mom and I don't really talk about it too much, was with uh, one of my ex-stepdad because he came here as a refugee he joined the freedom fighters at like 11 he was really young in iran and then he came here as like you know like a 13 year old or something he's been here alone ever since um and he's had a pretty difficult life and he's all he always talks about like what a great and wonderful country this is and how he's so lucky and we're so lucky and we don't even know how lucky we are um and he feels this real admiration and loyalty to the concept of australia And I can see why he feels that way. I get it. As somebody who, again, came from an underprivileged background, who maybe never really had these resources or like support that he now has here, 
I can see why he thinks that way. But I didn't have that struggle and I didn't come from a background of struggle in that capacity. I was born here. I grew up here. I grew up with an entitlement to be treated like an Australian, right? I think that there's this idea that immigrants feel like second-class citizens sometimes and they internalize their idea of being second-class citizens. They're always grateful. They're always serving back. There's this idea of serving the Australians back because they're lucky, like we should feel lucky that they let us in. And I don't feel that way. I mean, obviously for the, like, the political backdrop of just Australia not existing and that this being Aboriginal land and that everybody here is an immigrant, really. But even if we move further than that, I feel like I have a right to expect more from this shitty coloniser government because I don't view them as having saved me. And I don't see myself as a second-class citizen and I don't see myself as lesser than anybody else here. And I feel like I'm owed the dignity of equality, which I find that a lot of immigrant families don't feel. There's this like internalized low self-esteem that comes with having struggled your whole life. And so I think this entitlement to critique, this entitlement to demand more, you know, I mean, we're often called ungrateful for it or like we don't know how lucky we are. But the truth is like, I mean, luck, being lucky is, you know, it's different for everybody. It's all, it's all just depends on your situation. Some people think I'm lucky. I think other people are lucky. It means nothing. I feel like it's a bad argument because, I mean, a starving child with all his limbs, you know, a child who's also as starving with less limbs will think he's lucky. But like it just, none of it means anything because there's always somebody that's more lucky, you know? So I just think that like there's this low self-esteem that can be projected onto us and then we're treated as being like bad kids or ungrateful kids for just wanting like basic decency and fairness. And that internalized servitude from immigrant families, while we may reject it in this term, it does come up in other ways. Uh, actually, the tweet that kind of inspired this entire episode uh, was by a woman called Sahaj Kohli. She's like a writer. Um, I think she's an editor for HuffPost or was. Uh, she runs like an Instagram called Brown Girl Therapy. She's like a real pioneer for like actually talking about mental illness struggles in brown communities because we all know that doesn't happen a lot you always get that oh just pray just pray the suicide away (laughs) you know just like read the quran you'll be fine etc so she kind of is really challenging that um she tweeted children of immigrants are a byproduct of a byproduct and so on of a product of patriarchal and colonized systems Our learned behaviours and patterns are rooted in larger, intentionally created systems to serve someone and we just learn to live with them. God, this this blew my mind. Like, for real blew my mind. It was so interesting to me. It really relates back to what people kind of resonated with in our interracial dating episode. For those of you who haven't listened to it, uh, part of the dynamics we were discussing with interracial dating was like, when you're a person of colour that's in a relationship with a white person... It is really easy to kind of fall into acts of servitude as your love language, not in a genuine form, but because of a sense of uh, insecurity or like insignificance, uh, kind of believing the white supremacist power imbalance and thinking that you have to overcompensate for being the person of color in your relationship. We talk about it more in depth in the episode if you want to listen to it, but I think it's actually surprisingly common, especially because I thought maybe that was specific to me. But a lot of people reached out to us after that episode saying that they really understood that part and they'd actually never heard anybody talk about it before. So going back to that, I think this tweet by Sahaj kind of really embodied how we accidentally fall into servitude 
or internalized servitude because of our immigrants' family's way of viewing the world and like how lucky we are and how we how we have to earn everything and we have to be have to be successful. All of this implies that we need to do all these things to be worth something, right? And when our worth worthiness comes into play, it's very easy to become somebody that serves others because that's how you find worth. I know that I can be really guilty of that. I am 100% a people pleaser. I will show up to every function with chocolate and lollies and desserts and I've cooked you an entire everything and it's not even my party, but it's just my way of like, I guess, serving <laughs> because that's how I think people will like me and treat me well and respect me. And it's not even something I do consciously, but I just, I notice it with myself a lot. Um, and it's something that I've, I, I've had to work on personally with just like, not always falling into immediately people pleasing and serving others because we kind of never learned a coping mechanism for that we were just raised to serve others and then left to fend for ourselves and then it just presents and manifests in all these different ways in all in like Sahaj says into an intentionally created system this is capitalism that we live under this is colonialism that actively subjugated people like us to be servants for white people. <laughs> um, and then we've kind of, our families have grown up with all these internalized servitude issues. We've grown up with it. And then it's no fucking surprise when you hang out with other white kids and you're like the only one that's like kind of really conscious of how everybody's feeling and you're trying to be a good host or a good guest and you can't even ask for a glass of water without feeling bad. And all of these things about taking up space and demanding to be treated well or like, you know, just in general wanting to be a dignified human being without having to earn your worth, like that's hard for us. And it's hard for us because implicitly or not, we've all been raised to be lesser or to answer to somebody. And now we kind of don't know who we answer to. And we find it really hard to make that person ourselves. So it's like, it's a journey, you know, it's a struggle. Um, but I did want to bring it up because it was mind blowing for me, that particular one, uh, Sahaja's tweet. I do recommend checking out her Twitter. Sahaj Kohli because she says some really really mind-blowing stuff on there because she talks a lot about the immigrant child experience like a lot this is kind of her jam and when I went down her Twitter rabbit hole I was just like yes yes every single one of my complexes has just been explained back to me (laughs) like is this therapy um but it was really really good I recommend it but I wanted to end this episode on like a positive note because we've talked about all the complexes we've talked about all the struggles but I guess I wanted to say that like that doesn't define you and being aware of your struggles is the first step in correcting them. A lot of the stuff I struggle with all the time still do, um, especially culturally, still finding my place. I don't know where I stand with anything. Like I don't know what I even culturally identify as yet. It stresses me out because I think about the future and I'm like, oh my God, what if I have like biracial children that are half white? Oh my God, are they just going to be white? <laughs> like it's just random. And then it makes me think about my own identity and I spiral um but the first step is like just acknowledging that you are not you you are not what you do for others essentially and your worth lies beyond what your family has taught you success is and your worth lies beyond how much you sacrifice for others because life isn't actually about sacrifice we just think it is because that was our parents love language and that was the culture's love language that you show your worth and your kindness and your intelligence and everything by sacrificing for others and that is how you serve the world and it's just not especially now in a time where capitalism is just reaching the fucking boiling point and white supremacy is rearing its ugly head time and time again and I feel like it's at a time where a lot of us are just snapping and we're like this is not fucking working being you know 
just this silent good brown little girl is not working because people are stepping on us constantly and I feel like so many people like me are really starting to actually stand up for ourselves because we're kind of put in a situation lately where we have to so I wanted to end it on that because none of none of the stuff that you were taught about these things that you've internalized is real and I know you know it I know we're all waking up to it maybe you need that push this is your push this is your push Cool. So before we end this episode, we have our Patreon question of the week. On our page, we have a little question box for our top two tier patrons where you can ask us absolutely anything and we'll pick one at random each week. So this week, uh, Belle has asked us, where or who do you recommend to follow, read or engage with to get worldly information? Murdoch's getting in the way left, right and center. P.S. Thanks. Hope you have a good day. Oh, I did have you, a good Belle. day. I actually did have a very good day. Um, God, where do I, where do I get my news from? I will say that I get like almost all my news from social media. <gasps> Fake news. Uh, look, Dangerous. I follow like decent yeah. pages. I do recommend following actual news places, and maybe that's just a Jono in me because I was actually surprised by how many of my friends like don't follow like actual news publications. I do. Um, I get a lot of my cli- uh, climate change kind of knowledge from The Guardian because they do a lot of reporting on that. I also follow the Sydney Morning Herald, which honestly can be a hit or miss. Sometimes they post some fucking like right-wing shit, but other times they've actually done some pretty good articles. We've recommended a few of their articles here and there throughout the podcast series. So just like follow news outlets like that. But I probably I follow ABC as well. Honestly, I just, I've, oh, SBS and I follow like, SBS voices and all that as well. I follow a lot of news articles, but all of them are either like center or left. I don't follow any right wing ones. And this is an unpopular opinion in some circles, but I don't give a fuck about diversifying my feed by having some right wing shit in there. You need to look at both sides. I hate that argument. No, I don't because one of them is just not factual. <laughs> yeah, one of them is just fucking yeah, it's ideological like, mess. Yeah, it's like, guys, both sides, the real news and the fake news, guys. Like, fuck, no. <laughs> so I think my main, like, if we're going to talk about news headline kind of publications are like The Guardian, SBS, City Morning Herald, ABC. Um, but also, I honestly just follow a lot of, like, political accounts on Instagram and stuff. Um... You guys could actually, if you just go through my following on Sleeho for sure, there's a lot in there. I like uh, Baby Anarchists and I like Anarchist Bitches and I like, what's another one they get news from a lot? I can't remember, but I honestly can't think of the top of my head. But I follow, just like follow Instagram accounts that post regularly. Even like, I love Instagram accounts that just like post a bunch of like tweets of the day because even that is interesting. I am on and off Twitter. When I was working for 5Y, I was on Twitter a lot for the sake of being informed don't trust everything you read on Twitter, but also being aware of what's trending on Twitter is useful because that's how I know if shit is going down because everything happens on Twitter first. We hear about it on Facebook three days later. So I do recommend Twitter, but like be careful on Twitter because there's fucking fake news everywhere on Twitter. It's a shit show on there. I just get all of my news through memes. Just like meme pages, SpongeBob memes. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm the same. I don't really have any loyalty to any specific yeah. news sources. But I feel like it's not too necessary once you've developed a sense of media literacy. Because then you can sort of read most news sources and be able to pick out what's important and maybe what's a bit biased or ideological. Yeah. Um. What I will recommend to listeners is I am very much someone that watches too much YouTube 
And in the past few years, there's definitely been a sort of new wave of leftist uh, political YouTubers who maybe don't keep up on the current news, but they have a lot of great sort of political and philosophical analysis, which can really shape the way that you come to approach these issues. So ones that come off the top of my head, I really like this YouTuber called Philosophy Tube, who talks a lot about contemporary politics and philosophy. Uh, I like this YouTuber called Thought Slime. He, he keeps up on a lot of current news through an anarchist perspective. I love a YouTube channel called Folding Ideas for a lot of uh, media criticism. And let's say I'll chuck in Lindsay Ellis for like film analysis from a very like political perspective. So YouTube is actually has a great wealth of political insight if you can find it. So definitely check that out. Cool. Thank you for the question. And I just like to say that this episode is sponsored by you, our listeners. Uh, specifically, we'd like to thank the patrons, uh, Bronte, Beck, Rachel, Lucia, Sarah, Liz, Belle, and Katie. So thank you so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and the Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Sleeho Official and give me a follow if you like today's episode. And also follow my Instagram at Mitch's Miscellanea for discussions around film, music, and literature. Mitch's dot Miscellanea. Mi- yes, that's, that's my uh, handle. <laughs> also... If you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or you can email or you can DM Mitch or you can email us at here's the thing though podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns and any other important info. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Thank you. Bye. Bye.